Our reading today is from um, Philippians chapter 1, and we read from verses 19 through 26. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, and it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. May God add his blessings to his word. You may be seated. And what we can add to that is a piece of candy for those kids who return that after the service. I have one kid who said, Dave, this is a lot of work for one piece of candy. It is, but it's well worth your time. So good morning again. My name's Jim. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've been here, you know that we have been walking through the Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And in our passage, we arrive at one of these super famous verses. You know, one of these verses that if you're in, you grew up in church, you probably have a youth group, you know, t-shirt somewhere with this verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, this is one of those, those verses you see everywhere. It's what people call the coffee cup verses or the Tim Tebow verses. They, they tend to pop up places like coffee cups and under Tim Tebow's eyes during a game. I would challenge you to try and find one Christian store that doesn't have this verse on some sort of trinket that they're selling somewhere. It's that familiar and famous of a verse in our culture. But the downside to famous verses is sometimes they become so familiar that they lose the depth and the gravity that they really should have. Because if there's one verse in the Bible that communicates more clearly and concisely the purpose of the Christian life than this, I don't know where it is. When we get to this verse, we understand the purpose of the Christian life. So it's really important that we slow down, we rethink, we re-examine, and we let this verse say to us everything that it's supposed to say to us. So many of you might have heard of a missionary named Adoniram Judson. Judson was uh, the first serious missionary to Burma. He was the first missionary sent from North America. And during his time in Burma, he experienced hardships that I don't think any of us in this room could, could imagine. In his first 14 years there, uh, he did manage to put together um, the first Burmese grammar book. And he was able to see a few a handful of converts come together but he was also imprisoned, brutally imprisoned for a year and a half. And he lost his entire family to diseases, his wife, his children. And we have a lot of his writings and you can feel in these writings, this longing just to go home. And I'm not talking about North America, just to go and be with the Lord. The pain he had experienced, the physical, the emotional pain was more than he could 
than he knew how to deal with. And so he prayed, he said, God, I know my role though here is important. So would you just let me stay long enough to do two things, to see the Bible written in Burmese and could I see a church with a hundred believers? You know, I wanna go home, but I know that my time here is important enough to stay. And by God's grace, through the rest of his ministry, he was able to see the entire Bible translated into Burmese and he saw 100 churches planted throughout the country with over 8,000 believers when he died. Paul and Adoniram Judson, they knew something about the purpose of the Christian life that motivated them even in the midst of really unimaginable for us as 21st century Americans, unimaginable pain and grief and loss to know that even though something great awaits me on the other side of this life, there's a purpose for me here that merits staying just a little bit longer. And so when I come to this passage, I want to know what is the purpose of the Christian life? And I wanna look at this passage and I wanna answer three questions. First, why we can have a purpose. Secondly, what that purpose is. And then thirdly, what tools we have to carry that purpose out. All right, so first, why can we have a purpose? We can have a purpose because death has been defeated. That's why we can have a, def- a purpose. If you, you don't have to be on the internet very long to realize that Americans in the top five or 10 things that they fear most, death is always on this list. Death, not debt, death. Debt might be on that list, should be on that list. Death is one of the things Americans fear most. And because of that, we see articles and websites and podcasts and books devoting everything they have to helping people either to feel better about this in some way, suppress the fears that they have, or to try and keep it away as long as they can, doing whatever they can to either not think about death or live in a healthy life, living in a healthy way that puts death off. But death is something that's coming for all of us. I will die, you will die. The mortality rate is 100%. And so death is something that we have to interact with. And we can see in our passage that death is not is something that Paul didn't only interact with, but he interacted with it enough to know something that caused him to long for it. And we see this in verse 23. Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But he knew something. He knew something that made death in some way desirable for him. So what made Paul different than the majority of Americans today in the way that he interacted with death? And the answer is that he had a biblical understanding of death. And to understand death, to have a biblical understanding of death, we need to know three things. First, we need to know that death is an enemy. You know, there are many cultures out here who, cultures that have romanticized death, cultures that have made death heroic. In our, you know, in our culture, we can look at death as a, a good and natural thing that you know, exists to usher us on to the great beyond or reintegrate us into the great cosmos. But a biblical view of death understands that death is an enemy. And nobody could have been more clear about this than Paul when he wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. None of us were created to die. There's nothing good and godly about a soul being ripped from its body. It's a horrible thing to go to a funeral of a non-Christian and, and have somebody just make it feel like what's going on is life's big graduation ceremony. You know, and even as Christians, when we go to a funeral, it is okay to be sad because death is an enemy who comes and they take the people that we love most in this world. This is not the way that it was designed to be. Death is a curse that has come into this world because of our sin. And this is the reason that we need Jesus. Which leads me to the second thing that we need to understand about death is that it has been defeated by Jesus. Death is stronger than us, stronger than me, it's stronger than you, but it's not stronger than Jesus. And when death came to Jesus on the cross, Jesus did not stay dead. He resurrected and he beat death so that all of us would have a very different future. I heard one pastor say, what do you have to do to convince your half-brother James that you're God? You know, the only answer is come back from the dead, resurrect, beat death. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And his half-brother James believed, became one of the leaders of the early church. In Christ, all our enemies are defeated and especially our ultimate enemy, death. And that's why Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. You know, when I try to think, what does that mean? You know, when we eat something, it doesn't disappear. It becomes a part of us. And in some way, victory has swallowed death. So that death right now isn't disappearing. It's become a part of our victory. So what does that look like? Third point. Third thing we need to understand about death is that death hasn't just been defeated by Jesus. For believers, it is now a doorway to Jesus. There is now for us a joy on the other side of death that's sweeter than being reunited with an old friend. It's more peaceful than a full retirement account. It is more joyful than hugging our children. There's a joy waiting for us that is more satisfying than anything that we can imagine this side of death. But we have to go through it to be able to experience that joy. Death is a doorway. John Piper gives this illustration. He says, imagine for the believer now that you're you're dying in a cabin and death is the doorway. And as you get closer to death, You're approaching that doorway and just before you die, that door opens and behind that door is a fierce, ravenous wolf waiting to get you with his sharp teeth and his sharp claws. And so when that happens, you immediately become scared, but then the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and helps us to see that behind that wolf, we see Jesus bright and shining And Jesus is standing there with his arm extended to us. And then you notice that in Jesus' other hand is a brass chain. 
connected to an iron collar on that wolf. And you begin to move closer to death. Your foot goes across that threshold. You're scared, but the Holy Spirit gives you courage. And just as you cross that threshold, that wolf leaps to grab you. And with one flick of his wrist, Jesus pulls that wolf away. And you enter in the presence of the Lord. Death is now a doorway. It's our enemy. It was defeated by Jesus and is now a doorway. I saw a bumper sticker not too long ago that said, he who, he who has the most toys wins. And of course, immediately I was thinking of the futility of this, this mindset, but I, I began to think, you know, if, if death is still armed, if that, door, that wolf is still there waiting to get us, then that actually is a really good way to view this world. If this is all there is, there's no real purpose in our life. And so, yes, we should pursue all the toys we can. We should pursue all the satisfaction we can in this life because all they're going to be is something akin to a, a nice steak in a prison cell on death row. Because if death is fully armed, there is no purpose to our life. But because death has been defeated and disarmed, we now have purpose to our life that we can't imagine. We're now called into something that's bigger than anything else that we could possibly be called into. So what is that? What are we called into? What is our purpose? Second point. Our purpose is fruitful labor. Look at verse 22 and 25. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Convicted of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So because Jesus has defeated our ultimate enemy, death, we're now called into this bigger purpose. And that purpose is everything, it means that everything we do has eternal value. There's this movie called The Patriot. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert, but it's been out for like 20 years, so you've had your chance. But there's a scene at the end of The Patriot that has always stuck with me. At the end of the movie, Mel Gibson's character uh, is leading a battle against the British, and the Americans are losing the battle. And so people are starting to retreat, and then the flag bearer begins to retreat, which is really bad news because the flag is a symbol of hope. So when the flag bearer begins to retreat, everyone begins to retreat because if there's no hope, I mean, you can keep fighting, but there's no purpose. You're going to lose. And Mel Gibson knows this and he runs back. He drops his firearm. He grabs the flag, runs back to the front line, busts through the front line, makes it to the high ground and begins to wave that American flag. And then all the men begin to return. Because they know that where the flag is, hope is. And where hope is, purpose is. And in the same way, Jesus is our flag. Jesus is our hope. And Jesus is our purpose. So what is fruitful labor? Everything that we do to honor the name of Jesus Christ. Everything that we do to influence people in the name of Jesus Christ. Everything that we do that displays that we love Jesus. Everything we do that has eternal value. That is fruitful labor. And this is what Paul means when he says that he will continue on for your progress and joy. 
The labor that matters is the labor that honors Jesus and brings that joy to other people. That's what we're called into. Because if we just have a biblical view of death, you know, if that's all we have in this passage, then, then things like Christian suicide would begin to seem logical. And that isn't all, it isn't at all what Paul's saying. Paul's saying because death has been defeated, we have this purpose in life that makes our life worth continuing and worth fighting in. So what is, I was thinking through, what does fruitful labor not mean? <laughs> Okay, it doesn't mean probably that every person in this room needs to quit their jobs and become a missionary. I would be out of a job and we'd have no more church. I don't think this verse is saying that all of us are called to be missionaries in, in the traditional sense. And missions is something I want to always make sure that we're highlighting and funding and praying for. But what this verse is saying to most of us in this room is that wherever we are, there's value and purpose. Whatever it is that we're called to. Whatever it is, our job or our vocation, because there now isn't such a thing as a calling and a higher calling. There's just fruitful labor. There's fruitful labor in the church. There's fruitful labor in the home. There's fruitful labor in the office, in the hospitals, on the streets. We're called to fruitful labor. Everything we do, wherever we are, Our promise is that Jesus wants to make us fruitful in it. The promise isn't that we're going to enjoy our circumstances. And I've had a lot of people, by God's grace in my life, who have reflected what it means to live with a a mind focused on fruitful labor. I have a friend in Orlando who has done really well in his life. He, He has developed a lot of money, and his goal now is to connect with other people who have a lot of money and meet with them and pray with them and disciple them and take them to conferences so that they can understand the joy in giving that money away. The joy in giving that money to a bigger cause, to a bigger purpose. And this guy, I I know, has given away about 75% of what he's made in this life. For him, that's fruitful labor. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I know of a woman a single mom who was working every night cleaning office buildings as a second job so that she could pay the bills. And she didn't have 75% of her income to give away, yet she had great kingdom value because she understood her purpose and she would go office to office and find the name or the picture of the person who worked in that office and she would pray for them. She would pray for them by name, pray for their family, pray for their business, pray for all of them every night, night after night while they slept. And I feel pretty confident that in kingdom terms, her understanding of her purpose and her value and contribution to the kingdom was every bit as important and maybe more so than giving away 75% of your income. These were people who understood that wherever they are in very different circumstances, there's purpose in the Christian life. And because of this, one of my hopes between now and Christmas is that we will have on-mission moments where we're able to highlight ordinary people in ordinary jobs who are striving by God's grace to labor fruitfully where God has them in hopes that all of us can be encouraged and learn from them. 
And by God's grace, he hasn't just called us to do something and left us on our own to see it come about. He's called us to a purpose and he's resourced us. So last point, what tools do we have in our calling as Christians to labor fruitfully? Paul actually gives us four things in this text, four things that resource him in his attempt to labor fruitfully. And we see all of them in verses 19 and 20. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed. So four tools, four resources we have at our disposal. And the first is prayer. That one's pretty obvious. Paul says, I know that through your prayers, do you have people praying for you? And I'm not talking about just general prayers, but specific prayers aimed at a, at a life that would be fruitful. Do you have those people in your life? We have promises like James 5, 16 that say, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Do we have people in our life praying that we would be fruitful in our labor? I have a friend who every single time I talk to him, he says, Jim, how can I be praying for you? And I tell you, I need more of those people in my life. I, every time I'm around him, I want to be that, that kind of person for somebody else. And I know that many of you have been praying for us in this season, and I want you to know that your prayers are not just appreciated, but felt. I know a mom that would say her... Uh, her main job in life is to be a taxi driver. She just ushers kids back and forth from home and homes and various activities. But in her dash, they're the names of the people that she's praying for. And she spends hours a day praying that her friends and her family would be fruitful. Those are the people that we need to have in our lives. So the call here, I mean, it'd be great if we all want to become those people. But the question is, do we have those people in our lives? Because that's what's going to resource us to do this. And I can tell you, even from my short time here at Orlando Grace, that if you are a member of this church, you are prayed for in this way. You are prayed for on a regular basis by at least the elders, but I know even more than that, by name, that you would be fruitful. So we're resourced by prayer. Secondly, Paul says that we're aided by the help of the Holy Spirit. You do know you're not alone on this journey. John 14, Jesus says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And here it is, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is saying, you won't be alone someone's coming with you and that someone is the person who's speaking right now. Jesus is saying, I'll be with you. I'm coming to you. I'll be inside you. The Holy Spirit will come and allow us to see things that we didn't see, to believe things that we didn't believe, to be able to have courage and insight and wisdom that we didn't have before. And the main point of the Holy Spirit isn't simply to make us happy and comfortable. The main point of the Holy Spirit is to aid us in our purpose to see the mission carried out. That's the reason we have the Holy Spirit and that's the reason Paul's talking about him. When Angel and I lived in Pisa, Italy, I remember really well having one of these Holy Spirit moments. 
I was cleaning out our car and I was walking back from our car to our apartment and I was carrying five umbrellas in my hand and I had one open because it rains all the time in Pisa. And so I, I, we had a bunch of umbrellas in there. I pulled them out. It was raining at the time and I was walking back home and there was an older lady leaving her apartment and I passed her and I remember this overwhelming urge to go give her an umbrella. And it wasn't Jim being nice. It, it really wasn't. It was one of the moments I knew I was supposed to do something. I turned around and I said, excuse me, would you like an umbrella? And she looked at me. She said, no, I don't have any money. And I was really realized it does look like I'm selling umbrellas right now. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not selling you an umbrella. I'm offering you one for free. And she paused and she began to tear up. And I said, is everything all right? And she said, I just prayed. God, would you send me an angel with an umbrella? And I said, well, I'm, I'm not an angel in the way I think you're thinking about angels, but I would like to talk with you about the God that you're praying to. We are promised a Holy Spirit to come inside of us and give us everything we need for fruitful labor. We are promised love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control, and maybe a few divine appointments. So we have prayer, we have the Holy Spirit, and then thirdly, Paul is aided by Scripture. And this might be a little bit harder to see in the text, but do you realize that when he says this phrase, this will turn out for my deliverance, that Paul is quoting Job 13, 16, exactly as it appears in the Septuagint. So the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the translation the Philippians would have been using, and he's quoting this. And in English, Job is responding to Zophar, who's saying, all your troubles that you're having right now, it's because of your sin and your lack of wisdom, which coincidentally is exactly what all these slanderers are saying about Paul. He's in prison because of his sin, because he's unwise, because he's too rash. And Paul, because he knew scripture, was responding to the Philippians and I think kind of secondarily, these slanderers, he says, this also will turn out, will be my deliverance. These trials will not have the final word in my life because I know they serve purpose, that even in prison, I have purpose. And I think this is why Paul wrote verses like Romans 8, where he says, and we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good and those who are called according to his purpose. And this is why Paul in our text can say Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death for me to live as Christ and die as gain. Paul knew scripture and he knew it well enough to be able to apply it to his own trials in his life. Do we? So we have prayer, we have Holy Spirit, we have scripture, and then lastly, Paul is aided by the promise of Christ. So Paul didn't just think, probably Christ will be glorified in my body. You know, what Paul is, is teaching here, it isn't the power of positive thinking. It isn't naive optimism. It isn't wishful thinking. He says really clearly that he, Paul says that this is his earnest expectation and hope. And the word hope, it, in Greek, it carries a lot more weight than its English counterpart. 
You know, in English, we might say things like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope FSU wins this week. But praise God, our hope is more sure than that. In Greek, it's like saying, I hope the sun will rise tomorrow. I hope that gravity continues to work the same way that it did yesterday. I hope that I, when I build this fire, it's going to produce heat, be able to heat us up and cook food for my family. That's the kind of hope that Paul is talking about. He had this earnest hope and expectation that Jesus is going to come through on the promises as he made. And Paul knew that Jesus had promised that all things are going to work out for Paul's good and his glory, that Jesus would never leave him, his side on this mission, that nothing would ever separate Paul from his love. He promised that he's coming back. He promised that he's defeating death. He promised that he's bringing heaven to earth. And Paul, who saw the resurrected Jesus, believed in these promises and was aided in these promises. And that gave him the ability to see his purpose in life more clearly and the motivation to carry it out even when things were hard to say the least. And you can feel Paul's tension here. What's best? Is it better to die? Because I know what happens when I die. Or is it better to stay? But you can't miss his conclusion. Paul says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For I know that that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more important on your account. The purpose we have in this life, it is so important. We are called into something so much bigger and so much more valuable than anything else we do in this life that it merits delaying the greatest reward that we will ever get. And so when we come to this text, we need to ask two questions. We have one question for the non-Christian and one question for the Christian. So first, the non-Christian. Has death been disarmed for you? Because only when we know the answer to that question are you going to be able to really find your purpose on this earth. The question of death and its realities for us is probably the most important question that we are ever going to wrestle with. And what Paul is saying is the only hope that we have is Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, I am so glad you're here at Orlando Grace this morning. And my hope is that that will be a question that you will wrestle with today and the rest of the week. And if you have any questions as you process that, I would love to hit pause on everything and take you to lunch and have coffee and talk more. That's to the non-Christian. To the Christian, we have a different question. Are we living a life of purpose? Are we living out the purpose that Paul is, is talking about? You know, are we really saying to live is Christ? Or somewhere deep inside of us, are we saying really to live is work? To live is financial success. To live is to have a different job. To live is just to do something other than change diapers all day. There are so many other things that we Christians can continually go back to to find purpose in our life. And Paul is 
wanting us to come back and see that we have one main purpose that trumps everything else. To live is Christ. It isn't anything else. And so I want to finish by giving all of us what I'm calling a purpose diagnostic. All right, this is a way to see how are we doing in this area of purpose. And I'll tell you, it's very convicting for me to do. This isn't something that I've got nailed down pat and now it's, now it's your turn. A purpose diagnostic is this. What is it that we're praying for? And I have to be really careful because we have a very healthy category in scripture given to us to be praying for our own needs. You know, we're told to come to the Father with everything. Come to the Father with all our physical and material needs and our desires, emotional, everything that we have. We should go to the Father with those things. But a Christian who understands their purpose in this life is going to have another kind of prayer that evens out all these prayers. A certain kind of prayer that says, God, use me. I don't know why you're having me here. I don't like being here, but would you use me here? Would you make me faithful in here? Would you make me fruitful here? Because if you do that, then I'll see the purpose. And I'll be honest, if it was me writing you from prison somewhere, I I think I might write things like, please pray that I would get out soon. Please pray that these guards would be nice to me. Please, Please pray my cellmate would be nice to me. Please pray that the food would get better. But when Paul writes to the Ephesian church in the same scenario, he asks them to pray something very differently. He says, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul had a deep sense of purpose that God was at work even in a jail cell. So our challenge is to not doubt that God wouldn't desire the same sense of purpose and fruitful labor wherever it is that he has us. It is a little thing to go to Jesus and say, I want fruitful labor. I want you to help me see the purpose that you have in my life. And it is a little thing to repent of all the other areas that we go to to find purpose in our lives and ask Jesus, would you fill that space? Would you become the purpose of my life? Because my hope for everybody in this room is that when a sermon is preached at your funeral, and by God's grace, I'll get to do some of those. When a sermon is preached at all of our funerals, it wouldn't just be a sermon about death being gained, but it would be a sermon about a life lived in Christ, a life that understood its purpose. And so I want to finish by praying that for every one of us this morning. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you, you don't create life as this, this system of merits and trials that, that we need to accomplish to earn a sense of purpose or earn your approval but you approve of us because of Jesus Christ and then you draw us into a purpose and this purpose is so much bigger than any of us realize and I pray this morning that it would hit us how significant we are how valuable we are how eternally important our purposes are and I pray that that purpose would in no way feel overwhelming or 
or, or there would be any sense of shame or guilt, but it would feel empowering that we would delight that you would save us and call us to fruitful labor for you. I pray that we would see that and that you would let it be seen through our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.